I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Ah, go fuck yourself. Fuck you, Dennis. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh, Rebel Radio is going down. What do you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio. Today is a very special two-year anniversary edition of Rebel Radio. My guest today is Dennis White. Uh, you may know him as Static Revenger or as Latroit. Uh, he's a very talented DJ, remixer, producer, songwriter. He was also the first guest we ever had here on Rebel Radio two years ago. You can find him at, at Latroit on social media and uh, he flipped the script on me this time I thought it'd be nice in um, in honor of our two years to uh, go back to our first guest and, and kind of check in with him and see what he's been up to since that time and, and you know he flipped it on me and decided he wanted to interview me so I let him do it and, and we talk uh, all about my career path where I started um, all the twists and turns I've had all the mistakes I've made um, definitely a lot of crazy stories, I think, coming up on Rebel Radio. Uh, a couple lessons that he was able to pull out of me. Um, I think the big one being just uh, confront your fears, do it anyway. And, and maybe don't, don't worry about how hard it is uh, if that's going to keep you from getting started. You'll hear what it's all about. Let's get into it right after our EDM.com track of the week.
was Buster and Kazoo with B Underground, our EDM.com track of the week. Shout out to our friends over at EDM.com. Get over there and check out some new music. Um, and uh, let's get into the interview with me and Dennis White. Listening to Rebel Radio, my name is Dennis White. I am your host in residence this week. It's my great privilege to introduce a guy who's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Uh, this is going to be an exciting interview for me. I met this guy in 2000. I had moved to Los Angeles from Detroit and flown to Dublin, Ireland to speak at the Rebel Music Academy two days later. I met this guy. He was uh, from Los Angeles, peripherally in sort of like print and media and entertainment. Just got along really well. Uh, ended up being one of my lifelong best friends, uh, Josh Levine, as it turns out. Hey. So Josh Levine, welcome to Rebel Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. So you didn't even know we were going to do this. You just made the mistake of leaving your tape recorder out, and I just picked it up, and now you're going to talk to me. I have a strong feeling I'll regret this. Yeah, well, I, I have no doubt that you will. Uh, so Josh Levine in my estimation is always quietly the most interesting dude in the room, the most well-informed, and he's um, just a really unique history to, to Josh's career. Uh, UCLA graduate in 1993, major in linguistics and psychology, uh, whatever linguistics might be, uh, interned for Motown uh, during that period of time, and the Daily Broom, which is the UCLA paper. What were you doing at the Daily Broom? I was the hip-hop or the, the, sorry, the rap music critic. Really? Yeah. So you caught yourself saying you were the hip-hop, but that you were the rap music critic. So just talk real quick about the difference, particularly at that time. Like, what would have been the defining difference between? Well, they didn't have hip-hop yet. I mean, that's not really true, but but it wasn't common to call rap hip-hop yet at, at that time. Okay, and so what was sort of, what sort of beat were you covering? What were the artists being covered at that time? And was it more Los Angeles-centric or was it more to do with what was happening in the States at the time? You know, I forget why, what made me think I wanted to do that or could do that. But I was interning at Motown, which was just like a fluke. Like I wasn't, I thought I was going to go and be a, uh, so originally I thought I was going to be a stockbroker. At Motown? Interesting because, position. Uh, <laughs> because I really like that movie, Wall Street. <laughs> I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked... Which character in particular? Well, I thought, you know, except for the prison part, it was like pretty awesome, like, you know, Daryl Hannah and whatnot. <laughs> so, um, I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. So I go to UCLA, and of course, 
they don't have a program to help you become a stock stockbroker. They don't have a program to help you meet Daryl Hammond. <laughs> no, but Heather Graham was going to UCLA when I got there, which was a, it was a high point in my young life to see her walking around on campus. Sweet, Heather Graham's dope. So uh, anyway, that fell apart uh, pretty quickly, as you can imagine. And then the next plan, because I was living with athletes in the dorms, football players. Mm -hmm. And I uh, got to, to be friends with a lot of guys on the team. And the basketball guys lived underneath us. And like, so I was kind of hanging out in, in that scene. And, um, and then I thought, well, I'll be a sports agent. Because I know all these athletes. And they're, now, I didn't really think about the fact that by the time I went to law school, and all these guys' careers would have been over. And so <laughs> knowing them didn't actually help me. <laughs> But I didn't go too far down that road. It was just kind of like a thought that maybe that's what I'll do. So, and then anyway, one day somebody walked in to my dorm to visit my roommate and said, oh, a friend of mine's looking for an intern at Motown Records. And I was like, I didn't know what, a, I didn't know what an intern was. And I didn't know what a record label did other than, you know, I had a lot of records and I knew they had labels in the center. And I, I just didn't know anything about that. <laughs> You know, you get, like, I, I say this on the show over and over, like, before the internet, we just didn't know anything. Like, we had such limited access to information. I wasn't going to go spend an afternoon in the library flipping through the card catalog to find out what a record label does. It just doesn't, you know, either some idiot friend of yours told you something that probably wasn't true, or you just didn't know it. Right. So, I don't know. So, I was like, why do I want to do that? And she's like, well, you get free CDs. And like, okay. <laughs> So I go in there to interview for the job. Uh -huh. I'm totally like not, I, I was just like, whatever. And these guys are really telling me how I'm, I'm at the, like this is giving me entree to this whole world that there's tens of thousands of people that would die to be in my seat. And I just didn't care. And so, uh, anyway, long answer to your question. I got really excited about music through that as a career. And then for some reason I decided I should write for the newspaper. And I think because I could get into free shows in addition to the free CDs. And so um, I walked into the paper and I found the arts and entertainment editor. And I just told her I want to write for the paper. And she's, she's like, she writes on this class that you're supposed to take. And I said, no, I, I don't, that's not why I'm here. I want to write for the paper. And she's like, all right, well, show me some clips. And of course, I didn't know what clips are. What would a clip, clip be back clips then? Are, clips are uh, uh, articles that you oh, previously... Oh, clipping of articles, right, okay. Right. Yeah, literally, you clip it out and... Mm -hmm. it. So I was like, well, I haven't written anything because you haven't hired me. And so finally she got tired of like talking to me. So she's like, just go write something and bring it in. I'm beginning to understand that film. Uh, it's gotten me a lot of where I've gotten in my life. Um, so I went to a Cypress Hill show that night who were signed to Columbia, but the album hadn't come out yet. So they were like a big local act at the time. And I wrote a review of the show, and she thought it was good enough, so she published it. 
and I became the guy. And it, you know, I say that because in 1991, like the entire staff was worried about Soundgarden and Nirvana and, and this, all this rock and roll stuff that was happening. Uh-huh. None of them knew anything about rap except for you know Public Enemy and Beastie Boys and Run DMC. So, uh, so I, w- I had the whole lane to myself. And they were sort of excited to have a guy, even though I didn't know how to write, but I knew the music and I was interested in it and, and I could bring that to the paper. And so it became my lane. They gave me a little column. I could write whatever I wanted and I did, you know, a ton of interviews and, and all that. It was it was a great way to start a career. Well that's amazing. Um, what were some of the artists what were some of the artists that you were covering back then? that we know now, but through the lens of history, you sort of spotted early, or just... Oh, shit, I don't know what I spotted earlier than Cypress Hill, but that was a pretty easy one to spot. Um, but, you know, my first day kind of on the job, so after I got hired after that, I, I, I did two interviews the first day. One was with KRS-One, uh, who had been a hero of mine, you know, since high school. And that was over the phone. He was just a wild interview. And then I was in the Bay Area visiting family, and I went and spent a day with Too Short in his office, um, who was also had been a childhood hero of mine. And we spent like three, four hours together and had this really long, amazing interview. And so it was like the greatest, you know, it was like the greatest day of my life at that point. That's that amazing. Was, as it relates to music, yeah. Um, I don't know what I discovered. I was a terrible writer from journalistic standards. I can think, without going back, I can think of a bunch of facts I got wrong and never bothered to look up. I, like, Well, again, the luxury of no internet at the time. Yeah, but it was also, you know, it was a very personal thing for me, right? And, and, and I think there's, that it was, it's sort of like that gonzo journalism in the sense of, you know, I was writing about a culture that I was very immersed in and very passionate about, and it wasn't just like sort of disconnected, uh, just reporting. Rebel Radio is supported by Blue Apron. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. They make it easy for you to prepare incredible meals at home with um, meat, seafood, produce that comes from sustainable sources. They deliver just the right amount for each recipe so there's no food waste. And uh, they make it pretty easy to have a great meal for under $10 a person. It's, it's fast, convenient, affordable, and it's delicious. We've been doing it here. Uh, well, Christy's been doing most of it, but I got in there a little bit, cooked up a couple meals, and, and it's great. In, in under 40 minutes, we're eating, uh, we're having a great time cooking together. Highly recommend you check it out. And um, if you're the type of person that gets bored, there's uh, new recipes every week and they never repeat the same meal in a year. So it, it works out pretty nicely. Check out this week's menu and you get your first three meals free with free shipping just because you're a Rebel Radio listener. So go to blueapron.com rebel. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Go to blueapron.com slash rebel. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So around that time, you got into hip-hop management. 
a little bit. Yeah. Find some artists that you started managing. Tell me a little bit about that. What made you think it was a good idea to be a manager? I don't know. So I met this dude my first day at UCLA, uh, Roy Campanella III. Oh. And so, uh, you know, his grandfather had been a, a Hall of Fame Dodger, Dodger Hall of Famer, and his dad was a big filmmaker. Um, and Roy was going to UCLA, you know, same time I was, and we became friends. Like, he was the only dude in orientation who looked like somebody I'd want to talk to. And we, we became friends really fast, and Roy was a, he was a producer, record producer, and he just had his first credits. Um, I think he was working on the Bronx Style Bob album with uh, Carmen Rizzo. Huh. Um, and so Roy was like looking for a manager and he asked me to manage him and I said yes and I, I didn't know what to do or what that meant so I just did it and uh, he introduced me to this girl group, Skin Deep, who was like a little bit like the Spice Girls 10 years earlier mm. or 10 years too early maybe. Um, and I started working with them, and we got a demo deal with Randy Jackson. It didn't get picked up. I got to know Randy through that. Wow. And so, you know, I had like, I mean, I, all that's like, you know, I wasn't making any money doing that for a while, but, but it was like all these early signs of success. And like I say these things because, you know, there's a certain value and it, and it comes up from time to time in the interviews that, that I've done on the show to like not just not worrying about the fact that you don't know what you're doing and just kind of doing it anyway and know that you'll figure it out and I always say that like had I known in advance how hard some of the things were going to be I wouldn't have attempted them and uh, then I wouldn't have gotten to a lot of the things that worked out really well you know what I mean so I just kind of like was just jumped into stuff because it seemed interesting or I couldn't think of a reason to say no or or whatever um, or because someone asked me to and I'm, I'm you know I'm typically not very good at saying no to people um, so a lot of times someone says something like I you know I could have there's a good reason for me to tell Roy that I shouldn't manage it and he'd be better off without me and, yeah. and, and, and I could have foreseen that we'd probably never make a dollar together but you know, he asked in a nice way, and he seemed like a cool dude, and like it just was like a thing to do. Yeah. So I don't regret it by any means, but you know, that's just kind of my personality. Um, so I finally got an act signed to Atlantic. Uh, this guy named Bosco, who's kind of like a G funk producer, rapper, you know, sort of set to be like the next Warren G. About a year ago, a homie of mine asked me to say some hell of a tight rhyme. So I said this rhyme I'm about to say. The motherfucker was dealt to then the cow that bomb by hitting corners with my nigga rolls every day. Seeing how many hoochies we can fit in the tray. You get them took down off the alleys. We got the bomb bay, the bomb bay. I'm hitting corners with my nigga rolls. Didn't happen that way. He's, he's made a nice career for himself. Um, as a producer now, he works with Kanye and Big Boy and E40 and uh, a lot of those people. But, um, but you know, I got a, I got him a, a great deal at Atlantic, and we yeah, set out to make a record, and I kind of became, uh, became a manager, started a management company for a while. And again, not really knowing kind of what I was doing there, but 
just figured it out. Then you went to Herb Magazine would have been your first actual job? Yeah, so after the Bruin, I started writing for a bunch of magazines because there was this whole generation of rap magazines starting out. Right? Herb Magazine at the time was sort of the preeminent, you know, street culture, underground culture magazine that was sort of aimed in particular to music and more hip-hop and dance music eventually. Yeah, yeah. So, so what were you doing there? So, I, you know, I got a job with them as associate editor. Um, and... Uh, you know, sort of knew what that entailed, but um, I wasn't great at it. It, it's, it. it required a lot more time sitting in front of the computer editing people's articles than I knew really how to make sense of. So, um, so I did that for a while, it was okay. And I was managing on the side and, and writing for other magazines on the side and whatever, but uh, uh, one day, so there was like four people at the magazine. And four people at her? Yeah. Okay, Raymond, who and who? Raymond, Todd Roberts, who hired me, he was the managing editor. Uh -huh. um, there was a, a GM who was, um, you know, the ad sales guy, yeah. and, uh, and me. That's amazing. And then, um, and this is after, like, Jason Bentley had been there and left, like, the week I started. Really? And Jeff Chang, uh, who's now become a, a prominent author, like, he was there and left right before me. Um, so they had had this great, you know, there are a few other like prominent people involved, but in terms of, like the staff at that time, it was really, it was really, a, you know, skeleton crew. And so we're sitting there one day, and uh, you know, I found out that uh, the GM had quit, and so now we're down to three. And then Raymond comes out of his office one day, and he goes, "Hey, you, you seem like you're pretty good on the phones. So why don't you sell some ads?" <laughs> and uh, and he hands me a stack of those uh, messages while you were out. Yeah, yeah. Things that we used to write on. Yeah. And he's like, call these people, see if they want to advertise. And again, you know, I could have said, hey, I don't know how to sell ads, and you shouldn't trust your revenue to to some kid who doesn't know what he's doing and uh, whatever. But I didn't. That didn't occur to me. So I just said, okay start calling people and it was a little bit like if you remember that uh, that Seinfeld where George starts selling computers for yeah. his dad out of the garage He's like, sell computers I will show you how to sell computers <laughs> hello Mr. Feynman you want to buy a computer no why not <laughs> all right I say good answer thank you <laughs> So, Did you have one of those bells though when you <laughs> when you sold one? Lloyd Braun was my uh, foil. Um, so I, you know, I just started selling some ads and not very well, but you know, kind of doing my thing and figuring it out. And and I think you know the big thing I got from that was just learning how to talk to people about what it is we did because you know again I would call and had this like scripted like description of what herb is and it's about hip-hop and that and people would literally say well what's hip-hop and you'd say oh it's rap music and so you know th those subtleties but 
but just kind of figuring out how to approach people and, and engage them in conversation and all that stuff. Um, and people would, you know, a lot that, of, that's really interesting to me because I, I, I know you pretty well and I, I ask you often, like, you know, you'll have a story about, um, you know, hey, I just flew to fucking Dusseldorf and met the president of whatever the hell it was I wanted to talk to. I just, I'm always astounded by it. Uh, and I, I say, well, how did you do that? And you say, I just called him. What the fuck do you mean you just called him? But this offers a lot of insight to me into where maybe you would have started to develop that skill from just calling people and trying to get yeah. their attention when maybe... I still think in a lot of ways I'm not that good at that. I think I just have... Um, my, my life like I alternates between uh, doing things out of no fear and being too scared to do things. Mm. Right? Like I, I kind of like move between those two points. And I always, always regret the things that I didn't do because I was too scared. And I never regret the things that I attempted and failed when I had no fear. Yo, if you haven't already, get over to worlds.us. That's W-O-R-L-D-Z dot U-S. Sign up to attend the World's uh, Conference. I guess it's not exactly a conference, but... Something like that. You'll learn from the masters. They have the CEO of iHeartMedia, the CMOs of Samsung, of MasterCard, a lot of leading brands, people that are shaping business and culture as we know it. Uh, Sean White, Kelly Slater, all those guys will be up on stage speaking. And it's, it's like a couple day long event here in Los Angeles at the end of July, beginning of August. I'll be there, so we'll get to hang out in person. Um, and because you're a Rebel Radio listener, they're going to give you $200 off if you use the code Rebel Radio when you sign up for World. So make sure you do that. And if you do, hit me with a note uh, so we can make sure and meet up in person. Think of something off the top of your head that you didn't do because you were just fearful of the result or gotten your own way for it that you wish you would have? Take like, time. I knew I was going to have to answer that, ask that question when you were formulating the well, I mean, it feels like there's so many of those. Like, it, like whether it was talking to some certain girl or whether it was um, uh, like, I, I don't know. I so just, maybe less that something huge happened yeah. and more that, like, why not? Why, why would I not do that? Yeah. I should have just fucking yeah. Yeah, it's those things where you're just like, oh, I could never do that, right? I don't know what that is, but whatever that is, like whenever you're telling yourself, like, oh, no, that's out of reach for me, I think you just go for it. So and I don't always do that, and I always regret it when I don't. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's an interesting arc developing here for me, which is that, you know, you go to school for linguistics and psychology that doesn't sound like maybe... Uh, core requirements to go into hip-hop management or journalism. Right? Uh, so then you end up in hip-hop management and journalism to a degree. We all know you now as one of the preeminent sort of marketing minds of, of our time, right? Um, and so somewhere along there, somewhere along there you co-founded Rebel Industries uh, while you were at Herb, um, where I think all of those things sort of like coalesced or it was because of those things that you had done and had knowledge of that at that moment in time um, 
made a lot of sense, started to make a lot of sense, I think, to, to some brands and stuff. Talk a little bit about um, the decision to co-found a, a marketing company proactively and how that developed into what it did. Yeah, man, it's just like, a, it's, it sounds really smart now, but at the time, so, so I left there to do management full time. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. 94, I think. Okay. 45? 95. Okay. I left over to do management full time. And then um, I started, you know, management started going really well. Uh, and then I started making records with Raymond from Herb. So first um, we did a series called Herbal Beats. I am. Uh... music for the year or not or like anyway it was like an intro it was like an introduction to dance music and those sold really well and then I did uh, uh, put together a deal from Raymond to make his own mixtape personally jungle CD through um, home records mm -hmm. uh, so we started making music and, and our friendship grew quite a bit over that time and we started doing other stuff together and um, then I started management started not going that well and I stopped enjoying it in a lot of ways um, and I, I think a lot of the stuff that I didn't know that I was sort of figuring out kind of started getting in the way um, and so I, I knew that management wasn't going to be the thing for me anymore and so you know I was kind of trying to figure out that next move and, and I, I pitched Raymond on the idea that we should start a street team company together that uh, because I had done you know I had worked with a lot of street teams as a manager and kind of had a sense of how to run that and, and how to make it work and, um, and at the time that was a business and and he had this great property that you know thousands of people all over the country were really attracted to. So my pitch over breakfast was like, yeah, yeah. So my pitch was like, let me build a street team for the magazine. We'll promote the magazine, and then we'll sell. You can sell your advertisers the right to use our street team as well, and that'll just be an easy decision for for you know your labels and whoever else that's a great idea yeah I mean it's kind of a no-brainer like it wasn't that wasn't like a big it was a big idea in hindsight but at the time it was just like yeah that seems easy like it seemed you know yeah, yeah. so we just did that and we had you know 20 label clients the first year and worked a couple big records the little streetwear stuff and a couple movies and it was just kind of like it wasn't we weren't like we weren't doing anything huge, but it was just working. And, um, and you know, we were just kind of like finding our way, and then uh, Toyota came and found us. Yeah, my introduction to Rebel was right around the time that Toyota found you and asked you to help us sort of uh, bring a new 
aiming automotive brand yeah. that was called Sign. Yeah. Was it called Sign at the time that they reached out to you? No, at the time they didn't have a brand and they didn't know yet that they were going to start a new brand. Um, they just knew that they couldn't figure out youth on their own and that they needed somebody that, that understood the market and the culture and the people. And, and, uh, and that worked, that relationship worked really well for a couple reasons. One, because neither of us were in a hurry. Right, and that's a big lesson for me that, um, and Raymond and I at the time would have some arguments about like, why you're spending so much time talking to these Scion people and they're not spending any money. Which is, you know, his point was really well taken. And, and I just kind of was like, I just feel there's something here and we're gonna, I'm gonna chase it as long as it takes. It took eight months hmm. to get any, any money out of them. And, and all the other companies that they were talking to at the time just dropped off because no, who has eight months to land a piece of their business? Yeah. Um, so, uh, and by the way, there's been a lot of other people I've chased for eight months that haven't turned into anything, so it's not always the right answer. But, um, but also it was because what they wanted from us was very specific to what we were really good at. Right, and I remember going into a meeting early on and I had some salesmen talk that I was telling them about how I'm gonna help them sell cars and they were like, let me just stop you. <laughs> and they're like, we're Toyota. You don't, we don't need your help to sell cars. Right? What we need is somebody that understands youth and can connect us and make that work. And, and so, you know, that, that focus and that, like, real honesty on both sides about what we can expect from each other is, like, super valuable. Wow, yeah. I think not enough relationships. In, you know, I, I spoke on a panel recently with a bunch of agencies like mine who were all talking about how the things that they do to generate sales. And I was like, I don't generate sales. And they all were like, shut up, you're fucking this up for the rest of it. I said, what we do doesn't generate sales. What we do creates interest, it, got, it gets people's attention. And without attention, you can't get sales, but they're not the same thing. Yeah, that's... And, and, and so, but you know, clients are under such pressure to generate sales that they need to believe whatever someone tells them is gonna help them in that way. And so, you know, I mean, kind of, I'm kind of off on a tangent, but like it becomes this relationship where we're set up to not tell each other the truth. And that's, really, and that's really dangerous. So, um, so, so with Cyan, I was able to not do that Mm. And um, and we you know we worked with them for six years and we were able to like you know for me what was so exciting about that was uh, that we were able to do some really add a lot of value to the culture that we were part of to put a lot of um, amazing passionate people on payroll in, in different ways like including yourself to make the things that that they love to make and are, are good at making and that and that consumers wanted from them. Um, and so, you know, when I look back at that, I mean, you know, so, so Cheyenne, Cheyenne shut down, I think last year. They're still making the cars, but not under the Cyan brand. And it was a little bittersweet to see that happen. But uh, but I had like this incredible 
sort of reunion on Facebook with dozens of the people that we've worked with. And some of them, a couple of them got married to each other, and some of them started businesses together or made records together, did all these cool things that, like, were facilitated by science. Yeah, so what you, yeah, what you guys had done and having been the beneficiary of it myself was to create, you know, a, a culture and a a relevance, a social relevance for a lot of us that we didn't have at the time, right? Yeah. So, so you had people that had these random skill sets, whatever they were. And then you, you know, found a way to create these initiatives that Sion would sponsor all of us doing either whatever it was or, or something that was tangential to whatever it was, but still interesting and beneficial. And that was definitely, I am sure, it was one of the greatest career and cultural rides of a lot of our lives a lot sure. of us you know, yeah. brought up a lot of people and, and like in my introduction to street culture graffiti I discovered David Cho by interviewing him for you when I was not an interviewer you know, but just being thrown into that kind of stuff being thrown into Art Basel and discovering all yeah. and you guys were in you brought a lot of us into these situations that we would never have ordinarily been in so thanks man no that was awesome so then, uh, as the evolution of the, what I'm calling the, the rebel group of companies, right? So from rebel... Oh, that sounds official as fine. Yeah, no, I just uh, took a second to come up with it. Um, so from rebel organization to rebel industries, right? Um, talk a little bit about um, evolving into that and the kind of clients that you were working with at that time and some of the interesting things that were happening for them. So, so... We had Rebel organization, Raymond and I, you know, for six years, seven years, and then, um, you know, it kind of stopped making sense. Like, A, you know, Raymond, uh, you know, we love each other, we're amazing friends to this day, but I think we found that we didn't love being partners in business, and we didn't want to necessarily run companies the same way, Yeah, and uh, we were, you know, we... What's interesting to me is like the things that you think you're good at. Like, you know, we got successful for the specific reason that I just explained, right? Yeah. And then what that does is it brings a whole bunch of other things into the picture, like managing people and teams and HR stuff and, and a bunch of a bunch of skills that frankly I just didn't have, mm. and and in some cases that I really begrudgingly approach that I really didn't want anything to do with. And so, you know, the company was a mess for a long time. And it was, you know, success can mask a lot of that, but it also breeds a lot of that. Right? And so it worked really well until it didn't. And um, so it was, it was time to do something else. And, and, you know, no hard feelings. We were totally adults about it. And, and, uh, and I think we're both, you know, better for it. Um, but we, we just kind of split ways he didn't really want to be in the marketing business in that way and, and I didn't it didn't make sense to have a magazine partner the way it did seven years earlier yeah. right like the whole landscape had changed and all that so I just set up on my own to kind of do you know essentially the same thing I'd been doing maybe not as focused on this idea of underground culture because underground culture had changed so much um, that again, before you know, we started the company before the internet or before consumer yes. internet was popular. 
So, you know, when I would walk into a brand and tell them that, this, that there were millions of kids that didn't watch MTV and they had a completely different relationship to, to uh, music and culture, right? These brands, hey, you know, they either believed me or they didn't. And if they believed me, then it was a pretty easy leap to say, you can't get those people without me or a very short list of guys like right? And in 2007, that wasn't the case anymore, right? That you can find, you can find this shit in a half hour if you know where to look. And if not, you can find a 22-year-old to show you where to look, right? And so, so all that had changed. So it was time for the company to change. And so, um, so I kind of relaunched, you know, the same idea, which is that brands should make a real contribution to culture and should empower the people that are passionate about what they create to do cool stuff, right? Mm. But it just didn't have to be hip-hop or house music. It could be food, it could be gaming, it could be, you know, art of all different types. It could be all these different things. And, and brands can still play the same role and still take that same approach to culture. So, so that was the idea and, um, you know, and that's kind of what we do today with, with uh, you know, with, with soda and energy and cars and liquor and clothing and you know anything there is yeah um you took on a pretty interesting client within the last year yeah and so it was fun to uh, be speaking with you as that conversation kind of evolved and so you're representing as it, would this be the right way to say it? You represent Lincoln Park for sponsorship, or what's the? Yes, yeah, so I handle their brand partnerships. Okay. Um, you know, we have a we have a team that I lead. So that's fascinating, right? Because we're talking about like we're talking about brands introducing to culture, yeah. right? And now you have a cultural brand. It's a band who is its own brand, and then yeah. you're connecting them to corporate brands. So you have a cultural brand. And you're yeah. in between all of that. That sounds super interesting for me. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, look for me, it's it's the that was that was personally exciting because to get to come at the same problem from the other side, yeah. right? And um, you know, I, I think that's really interesting. I mean, look, they're one of the greatest, most successful bands in the world. Um, they're also this. Strangely, like it's hard to call them underground, but they're not like household names, especially the guys individually, right? They they've kind of underexposed themselves intentionally, which I've always felt is a, is an amazing place to come from, yeah. right? That, uh, especially in this era where overexposure is the norm, right? And so the big pop stars of today are just everywhere in front of us at all times, right? And and these guys are kind of the opposite. They have a really cool approach to their business and their lives. And they, they you know, the best thing I can say about them is um, they're six guys who have uh, continued to make music that they love and their fans love. And they're, and most importantly, they're they're still friends and they work together after 20 years, which is so it's almost unheard of, right? That usually bands or any partnerships but especially bands yeah. right they have a few good years if it goes really well they just ride that out forever 
and most of the bands that we all love don't talk to each other behind closed doors. Right? And these guys still hang out, they're still friends, they, they love and respect each other. And so that partnership I think is really valuable. And um, so the opportunity to be part of that was exciting. And, and I think, you know, it adds implications into the, the other stuff that I, you know, can bring to, to brands that we work with forever. Um, What's a dynamic to working with an act like Lincoln Park that maybe mm, you hadn't contemplated? But I think if you're not in those shoes, it's hard to understand the demands placed on on those guys, right? Or guys like that, right? Um, like everybody responds differently to being in the public eye. Um, some people thrive on it, and some like you know. There's a lot of we understand the difference between introverts and extroverts. You know, um, some people you know. Famous or not, some people travel really well, and other people are jet lagged, you know, beyond belief. And, you know, like, and so uh, we, but you know, culturally, we expect this 24/7 access to our heroes, right? We expect them to be always on, and we expect them to be, um, you know, able to, to to kind of deliver on their message and their promise, you know, at all times. And I think, you know, not living in those shoes, I think that's, that's an incredible challenge that every artist has to struggle with, um, especially if you're at that level where, where it's global and it's, you know, and so there's calls all the time like, you know, can they be in this country next week? And, and you know, partners don't always kind of understand why that's not feasible. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and I also think the... Uh, what it takes to manage a brand in that way, right? And, you know, in terms of deciding what's right and not right and where you draw the line. But again, that's a constant theme that comes up in this show is, is when do you, uh, when do you stick to your guns? When do you kind of go with the crowd or go with the flow, right? When do you... Is, is there an overall answer to that? I asked because my, my grandfather was a pretty successful guy in the auto business. You got to meet him once. And I asked him, I asked him, you know, in my early 20s when I was you know, coming up and looking for some of those grandpa lessons. Yeah. And so my grandfather, his, uh, his hit product was that he had had a patent and invented the, uh, the luggage rack. Okay. And then like a bunch of other random automotive shit. Yeah. And my question was the same thing for him then. I said, you know, Gramps, did you have this idea that you were going to sell your luggage rack no matter what and you would never take no for an answer? Or was this just the result of like saying yes to stuff like you're going after this, but then something, an opportunity showed up. So, Grandpa, do you just stay focused on your thing or do you stay focused on that thing so that you have something to focus on so you don't fall apart right. every day and you have a purpose in your life. But yeah. then when an opportunity shows up, you take that. And he, he said, you take the opportunity that shows up. Yeah. And so I applied that. Now, I'm not sure it was right for me because I don't want to hijack the interview and like be talking about me. But in, no, in, no, in the early 2000s when we met, um, I had this, this artist project called Static Avenger. And 
I was, you guys had put me in the like the next 100. You had that once a year. You had this next 100 list. Tiesto, maybe Cascade, other like pe people that had gone on to yeah. great success and riches. Now, no part of me thinks that I that would have necessarily happened to me. But what they did is they didn't take random opportunities that showed up. They just did what they did and stayed focused on that. And me, next thing I know, I'm making videos for Scion, fucking around with you in Spain, you know, doing all this stuff, which was great for me. That was great, right? I don't regret it at all. But that decision-making process kind of ensured that I was not going to be superstar DJ later in my life, which is, is fine with me. But this was the very long getting to the question, um, is there like a consistent answer for that when you're talking about that with people? You know, as best I can tell, it's pretty much impossible to reverse engineer success. Really? And that's uh, a discredit to this show, which is supposed to be about how <laughs> successful people do uh, what they I'm do. I'm out of here. I'm going to the pool. And, and also to the, you know, multi-billion dollar uh, success in personal growth industries that, um, you know, that tell you you could buy this book or go to this lecture or follow this seven-point plan to be successful like I think I mean I think there are certain governing principles but I think there's to me the short answer is it depends on you right and I think some people it, it's like you got to find where you thrive and uh, you know like Richard Branson's a good example I don't know if he just took every opportunity that came to him, but you know, if you listen and follow what he's gone through, there's been a lot of serendipity. The interview that you oh, me on uh, how I built this. how I built this was a great interview. Great show, great interview with him, and it really tells, it really paints a picture of a guy who kind of had some cool ideas, but was out for adventure. Yeah. Right, and and he to some extent he let things take them where they did. Yeah. It's worked out really well for him. Not all the companies that he's been involved with have, have thrived, but a lot of them have. And another, another virgin cola, please. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And then, then there's people, and then Elon Musk is the exact opposite of that, right? And I think, I've never met either one of those guys, but I have a feeling if you spent time in a room with them, you would see they're completely different kinds of people. And so what works for them is not going to be the same thing. Yeah. So I think it's impossible to write this universal rule of success in that way. But it's really, the lesson I take from that is get to know yourself, right? And get to pay really close attention to whether this decision is going to suit you or not, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm finding that's true in everything, right? Like I've, I spend way more time looking at, uh, you know, diets and health regimens and, and all that shit that I probably should and I realize that like it's very it's different for everybody right and and um, 
you know, some people can eat a fucking plate of fries and be wrecked, and someone else, it'll have no effect on them whatsoever. Mm. Yo, if you're enjoying this one, um, go back and check out the first episode ever. If you, if you go to iTunes, scroll all the way down to the bottom, find uh, the first one, which I think is labeled Detroit back then, um, and uh, you'll hear a lot more about Dennis and his path and everything he's been through. It's a good one, um, especially for our first episode, so check that out too. You're listening to Rebel Radio. Palm Springs edition. I'm your host in residence, Dennis White. It's my great honor to be speaking with the actual host and the founder of Rebel Radio. We're about two years into Rebel Radio. Yeah, we just hit our two-year mark. Two-year mark. And you and I were talking a few weeks ago about you were at, you know wondering like who would a good who would interview next? Who would be a good interview? It's pretty quick to point out you would definitely be the best interview on your show. Oh, well, you're wrong about that. Sure. Well, so far. Uh, but we got a little time left. But uh, anyway, so it's great fun to to do this. So talk a little bit about that. How did you? What made you want to start a podcast? Um, ben, you know, two things I'm most impressed about the podcast. First of all, it's really good. You know, you've you've done very well for yourself um, in terms of evolving into a really um, interesting and informative host and interviewer. Uh, what made you want to do this? And how the hell have you stuck with? I mean, doing one a week. For two years, I'm a guy who did a podcast. You couldn't get one out of every six weeks out of me. I understand these things are hard to make and hard to actually do. Um, so, talk a little bit about first, what made you want to do it? First of all, I think we're going to change the format of the show. I'm just going to have different people interview me each week. These are the, just so definitely be the best ones. That'll be awesome. Yeah. Um, so I didn't realize how much work it was. Yeah. Okay. To, to the to point that. you were making. Yeah. Which is important. Yeah. Because I probably wouldn't have started. Um, it's a fucking blast, man. Just, you know, talking to people, digging into stories. Um, I mean, you know, we had a good, you were, you were the first guest, which was a great move on my part um, because you were willing, first of all, to be my kind of guinea pig, but also because, you know, we know each other a long time, we're, we're close friends, but. It, it illustrated for me even like how much there is that I don't know about my friends and people that I know a lot about, right? And so that's been part of this journey is to get like, to think like an interviewer about your friends because you don't interview your friends. So there's all kind of stuff that just never comes up in the course of, of the relationship. So, you know, that's been, that's been really interesting for me. Um, I don't know, I started it because I, I wanted a little bit to get back to that to that journalism. I, I mean, I think the short answer is like, I spent a lot of time in boardrooms or talking to marketing people, um, which is fine. There's a lot of great in that, but, but it also, I felt like something was missing, right? That, that a lot of what drove me to my whole career path has been to uh, spend time around and enrich the lives of creative people, and um, and I felt like I haven't been doing enough of that lately. Mm. Right? That that you know the day-to-day rigors of running a business and making sales and things like that just kind of take me away from that. So I needed a reason to get back in the room with people that are doing stuff that I'm really passionate about, or that they're really passionate. About. Yeah. Um, 
there's not a lot of passion in, in corporate America. And so... The, there's a lot of talking about passion. Sure. Right? There is. Yeah. There's a lot of talking And there's some examples, uh, uh, exceptions to that. I've had, you know, great pleasure to work with some just amazing marketers who really give a shit about what they do and the impact that they make. That's been amazing. But that's not always the case. And so I found a lot, a, a lot of frustration in, in some of that. Um, so that's what was really driving me, and I wanted to do that in a way that I could share it with the world and be a little bit journalistic, although I had no interest in like sitting and writing by myself for long periods of time. It was much more about like having interactions with other people. You think many? Uh, let's talk about some of the highlight guests you've had or highlight moments you can think of off the top of your head. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, it's a little bit of a blur. As you said, it's it's one a week, which is which is an interesting. Like, I'm glad we're doing it this way because I think it forces a certain discipline. Like, had I not told myself from the beginning that it was that we were going to do it this way, then yeah, it would be six weeks, four weeks, nine weeks. It would just kind of be whenever we get to it. Yeah, right? um, and it's and it is. Parts of it are a lot harder than I anticipated, and so having that deadline looming kind of has forced us into a discipline yeah. to making stuff happen. So with that, though, comes a, there, there's a little bit of a blur to that, but um, but I've really enjoyed like the surprises that come out. Like, um, uh, well, you know, I just had Mark Jones from Wall of Sound on. I caught up with him when I was in London, and like this that interview was crazy. I love Mark. He's he had like some brilliant things to say, but like he put on a clown mask in the middle of the interview and just started. He just went down this whole road about this clown thing that he's doing, and you know, that's. I mean, I lost control of that interview almost from the beginning. <laughs> and there's a few of those. You know, I had I had Milana Weintraub, um, who's a great actress, comedian. Uh, she's the uh, AT&T girl. Huh. You know that, and she did kind of like this. Like she refused to answer any of my questions and just interviewed me. And I just kind of went with it and let her like take over the show. And so, so like a lot of it, you know, I do a decent amount of research and preparation, and I try. To, I do not. No, nor should you. I, I don't know that that's the unless right you call knowing somebody for seventeen years. <laughs> I've been. I have been yeah, doing seventeen like, years of research for this interview. Exactly. Um, and you know, look, I don't know that all that is necessary or that it's. Um, Should have told me that 17 years ago. <laughs> but I think, you know, part of it is I'm still figuring out what kind of show this is. And so, like, I have certain, you know, heroes or models that I look up to um, that, uh, uh, that kind of influence the way I approach it. And so whether that's like out, who? who do you think does a good job? Well, you know, like sometimes I'm trying to do that Stephen guy from Freakonomics there. Right? I <laughs> yeah. catch myself doing that. Blah, 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 blah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I was trying to do that. Thanks, Stephen. But who do you like? Oh, so he's one. Yeah, Stephen Dubner. Yeah. Freakonomics podcast is awesome. Yeah. Um, but, he, you know, but I'm not him, right? Like he does what he does. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not a Harvard economist, right? So I'm not going to approach things in the same way. Um, <clears throat> But I think I take some inspiration from that. I take some from Howard Stern. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, not in You're the, the shock. second person to say that in the in the last week, which 
like second smart person that I wouldn't. I don't know. I mean, I'll, you know, I'm not trying to be shocking the way that he is, or I don't know if he, even if, if that's still really who he is, but um, uh, but he's great with his guests, right? And he gets into much more of a conversational relationship than a kind of interview. Um, and so I, I really, you know, I look to that. I look to, uh, you know, there's people like Michael Rappaport, who I'm not at all like, but I appreciate what he does. So it's like I don't want to, I don't want to be him or run a show like he does. But I enjoy it, and so it still has some impact on me, right? As I think about what I'm trying to do. Uh, then there's like you know, inside the actor studio, it's just like smart talks with amazingly talented people, right? And I like so, uh, you know, it's it's it ends up. There's a mix of all that, whether it comes out in the show or not, I don't really know, but it's really swirling around in my head. Um, and so I think it's just kind of figuring that out. And the show's changed a lot, I think, over the two years. Like, uh, you know, when I started, I had written out notes. And I kind of went through my, my question. I wrote, wrote out my questions and that. And then I just found that really distracting. And I found it really took away from the conversational piece of it to have me looking down and notes or whatever. But I was scared. Like, I was scared that I was going to sit there and look like a fool in front of somebody and not know what to say next to them. So now what I do is I write out. I, I do the same thing. I write them out. But I don't bring them. Uh, and so they're kind of in the back of my head, but you know I don't really look at them. Um, and then I think I've also found certain questions that work really well, or other questions that don't work well at all. And so I've stopped using some and added some, and you know that sort of thing. Uh, well, uh, that's amazing. I've enjoyed sitting with you here in El Jefe Tequila Bar at the Bar on Palm Springs. Hell yeah, it's a great place for it. Approximately the second anniversary yeah. of the show. Let's do it again in two years. I'll give you two years to work on some more questions. No, I'll interview you in two years. I look forward to that. But anyway, listen, congratulations on everything. Wait, I want to ask you a couple questions first. It's, it's, uh, we do, so I do a lightning round now, which I wasn't doing the first time you were on. Okay. And so it's uh, roughly 10 questions that I ask everybody on the show. And I do look these up. So I should ask you these, right? No, I'm going to ask you. Because no one cares about what I think. Okay. I don't know why we call it a lightning round, because, well, with any luck at all, it's going to go fast. We'll find out. All right. Yeah, some of these may just be coming out of nowhere since we haven't been talking about you for the last hour. Let's see how they go. We'll cut out the ones that, uh, despite my last attempts. If you can go back and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would it be? Pass. <laughs> it would be to pass. No, um, it, it would be, well... My 18-year-old self would listen to me. If my 18-year-old self would listen, I would say uh, trust people who know more than you and have more experience than you. Just trust them. Dope. Right? So there's a, a, a guy that signed my first little production deal, whatever, 
back when I was making records that I was trying to make every song I wrote sound like as stacked as the as Sgt. Pepper's or something like this. All these parts and all this bullshit. And this guy would just try to get me to strip it down and keep it more simple, more simple. And I refused, I raged against it, and then through the lens of history, every single time he was right. The song, the demos were always better. You know, just trust people that know more than you have more experience. That's good. What talent, other than the ones that you have, have you always wished you had more of? Listening to people that know more than I do. Okay. I'm, I've gotten there. In, in the past five, six years, I have gotten right. Now that my career is over. Just in time. Right? So I, I work with and mentor a lot of young artists now. And I got this saying, I said, look, it, you can either learn from your mistakes or you can learn from my mistakes. Trust me, it's faster if you just learn from my mistakes. That's a good one. If you, if you could choose another career outside of music and know that you would not fail, what would you do? Oh, well, uh, advertising or like some chef culinary mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. I love advertising, but just as like a, as a heckler, I'm not really in advertising. But if I see a shitty billboard, I yeah. mean, my poor girlfriend has to listen to me. I'm talking about the fact that I like uh, advertising a lot. And I said, if I drive past a shitty billboard that I think they're getting wrong, my poor girlfriend has to listen to me yell about that for like 30 minutes yeah, yeah. about why it sucks. Like the one that's Christine gets the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I really, it's like a game we play. I love, I love advertising. I love the concept. The idea that you've got to get a lot of shit across that quickly, yeah. right? And there's an art to that. And I also love the short form of 30-second spots where you got to get people to like maybe, maybe feel a certain way. You want to feel a certain way and know a certain thing about what you're trying to say. I'm astounded by how many people get that wrong. Yeah. Some really, really get it right. Yeah, but it's but uh, my here's the problem with advertising that no one likes to talk about because we look we want to talk about that it's because of technology or because of media fragmentation or whatever and all that's true. But the big problem that no one talks about is what you just said is how hard it is to get that right. And so what I mean is, you know, there are. I don't know how many TV commercials are made here. Let's say there's 10,000. It's probably more. There's probably only room for 100 good TV commercials a year. How come there's not room for 10,000 good TV commercials? Because it's that hard to do it really well. When I say room, I don't mean like that the the channels couldn't handle it. I'm saying that there isn't... Like most TV commercials, if you watch TV, most commercials should never have seen the light of day. They're just that shitty. <laughs> well, but most everything should never see the light of day. Most recorded okay. songs. Yeah, sure. But it's different. I mean, yes, I agree with that. But it's different when it's some kid out of his bedroom who's like versus a multi-billion dollar company paying a multi-billion dollar agency employing a huge creative team to make some piece of garbage that should have just been thrown away but the media time was bought and they got a and there's marketing plan so they run the the ad this part's called the lightning round is it? yeah yeah, it's super fast as you can tell if I worked for you what's something I would hear you say over 
God damn it. Who would you be most excited to learn as a fan of your work? Somebody get a shot of me rolling my eyes at that answer. Well, right. Somebody that I, a person that I admire. I'm very excited about that. Pick one. Well, two off the top of my head have passed away, but. Who's alive? We'll get them on the show and see if they're fans of yours. Somebody I admire. Oh, oh, okay, no. Uh, okay, this actually happened. So at the time that I learned that Fatboy Slim was a fan of my work, he was my hero in life, and that was uh, that was a massive moment in my life that I will never, ever, ever forget. That made me feel like I was, was doing something. Yep. Yeah, so, Norman Cook. Thanks, Norman. What's your favorite city to travel to? Uh, Barcelona, I suppose. You know, that's the one's a combination of familiar and stuff like that. Okay. okay. What's the one? Uh, probably Amsterdam. Yes, yeah, still, I've been there half a dozen times, still don't give a shit. Like, it's good for a day and a half, I don't get it past there. No, I love it, I spent a week there and I love it. Okay. Um, I think it's ever been to Sydney? No. That's Sydney Harbor with the Harbor Bridge and the Opera House and these lovely little bar restaurants around there. That's probably one of my favorite places in the world. I, I have a feeling where what will end up being my favorite city is somewhere I haven't been yet. And it could be Barcelona or Sydney because those are too high on my list that I just haven't made it to. But of the places I've been, you know, Amsterdam is a combination of like it's, there's beautiful surroundings, the canals, and some of the architecture and that stuff, which it means that stuff means more to me than I think it should sometimes, but it does. And there's just this crazy youthful energy of it. It's like yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah. Tell, tell what you told me. Well, you know, I went. My aunt sent me on a tour for my 18th uh, or for my uh, high school graduation. So when I was 18, I took a European tour with three of my buddies. It's kind of a cheesy, touristy, commercial thing to do, and I'm not like, I wouldn't have done that on my own, and I cringe at it a little bit, but I'm also so glad because it took me to a lot of places. At that age, had we just gone to Europe on our own, we probably would have, well, it probably would have been Amsterdam because we would have just smoked a lot of weed and stayed in the hotel for three weeks and then come home. We wouldn't have seen all this shit, right? So, but we, we got to Amsterdam first, and you know, and every time I've been there, I look around and I see what looks to be a ton of young people who, who kind of seem like they're out of the house for the first time exploring the world. And I think that the city just buzzes with that energy of like self-discovery and self, and just like, you know, it's this weird like San Francisco in the sense of like free to be like as crazy as you want or at least how San Francisco used to be, right, with um, with this grand European city. I don't know. Something speaks to me there. What's the last great book you read? <laughs> Carl Heisson is a writer from Miami, a contemporary Dave Barry, sort of like a smart, uh, like, 
cross between crime novelist and humorist kind of mm-hmm. guy. And a lot of his stories take place in the Keys, and I'm familiar with the Florida Keys, so it's super fun for me to write, uh, to read this. So, Bad Monkey. I oh, think, cool. Was the I'm going to read that. Because I've, I've seen his name a lot, I've never read one of his books. They're so super fun. Oh, that's cool. cool. Uh, Carl Heisen is it's like a, a safe bet between um, tongue-in-cheek, smart humor of Dave Barry and the genius-level uh, crime novel writing of Elmore Leonard. Oh, killer. Yeah, that's... Okay. Yeah. I'm in. What movie have you seen the most in your life? think about this actually recently because I, I, I'll see a movie that I like dozens yeah. of times. Yeah, over and over. Yeah, so it, that would be like Godfather 1 and 2. That would be Snatch, um, 2001 Space Odyssey, I've seen dozens of times. Spinal Tap, but that, not, not for a long time actually. Uh, but those movies, it occurred to me recently because I'll just think I'll I'll watch movies the way some people will just listen to like they're a song they like. Yeah, yeah. I want to hear this song right now. Yeah. And there are scenes, there are scenes I've been thinking about recently, like the Hyman Roth and uh, Michael scenes at the um, at the top of the hotel. I'm very pleased. You're all able to come from such distances to be with me today. When a man comes to this point in his life, he wants to turn over the things he's been blessed with, turn them over to friends as a reward for the friends he's had. I was just thinking about those. I'm like, yeah, I want to see that yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, what about you? Those are good. Um, for me, the ones, I mean, you know, Godfather 1 and 2 are big, but for me, the ones I've seen the most are not movies that I, that I... We'll be on just a little bit. They're not the ones I seek out and start from the beginning to end. They're the ones that I'm flipping through channels and I see it and I just jump in. Yeah, like Plane Changes and Automobiles or Fletch or uh, Spies Like Us or any of the Mel Mel Brooks, like Blazing Saddles. Like I've seen that movie, you know. Did I see Mel Brooks with you or did I only wish that you came to see Mel Brooks with you? Uh, No, I didn't go. You couldn't? Something okay. But like, I've seen Blazing Saddles. We saw Don Rickles. Yeah. 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 But like, in, in its entirety, I've probably seen it a couple dozen times, yeah. but I've seen parts of it like a yeah. hundred times, you know, because it's just on and you're like, all right, I'm, I'll give it, you know, a minute, whatever. Um, who's your favorite DJ of all time? Um. Can I just talk about some good DJ sets? Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, Fatboy Slim for sure. Um, Where? What was the set? Oh, I've just seen him so many times that each time I see him, he's doing something really clever and unique that is his own voice that speaks to any generation of fan. Um, I mean, the last one I saw was Sarah Harrison at Coachella a few years ago. So what I love about guys like him is like I'm not a huge fan of his music. I like I it. Always was. Yeah, I like it, but it's not like that's not my music, right. first and foremost, right? Um, but uh, then the stuff he'll play is not always that style. 
right? So, of course, yeah. so the like, uh, was it Big Big Boutique or like the? He'll do all the, the soul, funk breaks, that kind of shit that you didn't expect to hear from a, from a dance music guy. Like, to me, I always get excited about uh, stuff like that. Surprises. Um, one of the great DJ sets I ever saw in my life was with you at one of the song parties, Jazzy Jeff. I can't say, like, I follow him and I'm over-familiar with him, but that show, that set, blew my mind because it was the first time I saw anybody uh, beat juggle like that but without take like not breaking the flow of, mm-hmm. of the music right the, the, like the dance floor was always never not moving and yep. everything he was doing was to enhance that and anytime I seen turntablism which I, I love it's really honestly I think my favorite form of perform music because mm. it's a mystery I don't understand how that could possibly be happening it's like black magic to me and usually that's uh, usually those moments represent a stop in the flow of, of music to have like their drum solo moment right so that's why that was such a big set for me and I don't know there's a couple of times those are good. Thanks for bearing with my lightning round. Oh, hey, yeah, that was fast. Anyway, uh, Josh Levine, it's been a pleasure interviewing you on your show. I'm Dennis White, the host in residence this week on Rebel Radio. Thanks a lot for listening this far. Good night. Yo, that was our two-year anniversary episode. Thanks to Dennis. For making time, we were uh, taking a quick little vacation in Palm Springs, and he made time by the bar to, uh, to record that for you guys. So I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you leave us a comment or a review on iTunes. Um, hit us up on Twitter at Rebel Radio Net. Facebook, same thing. YouTube, same thing. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.